Now our scripture reading today is Genesis 37, 1 through 8. This is on page 32 of your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd definitely love for you to just go ahead and take that one as a gift from us. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Holly. Well, good morning and welcome again. Uh, My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here. and Thanks for being with us this morning uh, to worship together, to spend time together thinking about the good news of the gospel. And uh, even though Holly just left to go to Newcomer Coffee, this is Holly's first Sunday uh, on staff. And so can we just give her a hand? Uh, She'll hear it through there. Yeah. Um, really, really, really glad to have Holly uh, on our team. She started on Monday. This is her first Sunday as a staff member at Christ Community. So if you haven't had a chance to greet Holly yet or meet her, um, do that this after, uh, after the service today. Well, as we begin uh, the message, as we continue looking in the book of Genesis, I'd love to pray as we continue in our service this morning. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken in your word. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you continue to speak to us through it today. That this is not only an ancient book, which it is, but it is a living and active word from you to us. Um, So I pray this morning that we would hear afresh from you, that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would encourage us where we are discouraged, and that more than anything, that we would come to treasure and love Jesus more for having spent time together singing and um, looking at your word together. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I I know this is probably obvious just by looking at me, but I'll make it clear. I I do lift weights. on a regular basis. Uh, no, actually, I, I've, I've recently gotten back into lifting weights. I've never been a big weightlifter, uh, but I've, I've started lifting weights again. And, and recently, my, my weightlifting has gotten me thinking about my, my nephew and his fiance. So he, my nephew just recently got engaged, and I need to tell you. So my nephew, Isaac, he, is, uh, he plays football for Northern Illinois University. He is six foot, six inches tall, uh, weighs about 310 pounds. He's, uh, he's a massive human. Um, and Isaac, as a, an offensive lineman for NIU, uh, I'm pretty confident lifts more weight in a week than I'm going to lift all of this year. Um, 
And so I'm just, I'm never going to put myself in the same category when it comes to, to working out in the gym, lifting weights as Isaac. Uh, however, the other day when I got to meet his fiancée, Catherine, um, I, I began to, 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 to think it, it caused a little bit of, of envy for me because uh, Catherine, this is important to know in the story, uh, she's like five to a hundred pounds. I mean, she's a, a tiny human. So the two of them together is actually, I mean, it was a, it's a little bit of a funny picture. I was trying to find a good picture. I couldn't find one. So she's, so I'm getting to know her, and I'm just like, tell me about uh, college, high school, and we started talking, and she says, oh yeah, when I was in, in high school, I actually did powerlifting for a while, and I held a world record for deadlift as a, in my weight class. Now granted, there are probably not that many hundred pound powerlifters out there, so I don't know what her competition was on the deadlift, but I, I began thinking as I was at the gym this week, doing the deadlift, I don't remember, I think I blocked out what she said the record was, because I was just like, but it's definitely more than I'm lifting right now uh, in, in the deadlift for sure. And again, I would never put myself in the category of weightlifting as Isaac. I mean, you would just laugh at me, right? But Catherine, on the other hand, I immediately started comparing myself to her. And comparison is the birthplace of envy. And envy, it, it is a vice of proximity. What do I mean by that? It's a vice of proximity. Envy is something, you don't envy people who are just way better at you than something, right? We don't, we don't envy celebrities or all-stars. We might admire them. We might look up to them. We might even sort of fantasize about having their, their life. But we don't envy them. What we envy emerges among our peers, in our neighborhood, school, office, work, gym, even at church. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas put it this way, we only envy those whom we wish to rival or surpass. Right, and that's the difference between Isaac and, and Catherine. Like, I don't, I don't wish to rival or surpass Isaac. Like, that's not even a possibility, right? He's just in a whole other category. But Catherine, you know, it's like, oh, I could rival or suppress. I feel like I should, her, in weightlifting. I admire Isaac, but I'm more likely to envy Catherine. Does that make sense? And when you and I find envy creeping into our hearts, it doesn't take long to discover that envy never gets you what you want. Envy never gets you what you want. And there's perhaps no story in the Bible where this is more painfully on display, more vividly seen than in the story of Joseph and his brothers. And today we're launching into the final section of the book of Genesis. We've been studying uh, Genesis for a long time now. It actually might seem to some of you like we've been actually studying Genesis from the beginning of time. Uh, it's, I, I checked. We just began back in March. So, but it does feel like a long time. We've been in this book for a long time. We are now coming to the end of Genesis. This is just a few more weeks. We're going to look together at the life of Joseph and his family in these final chapters of Genesis. And we want to learn from the example of Joseph in this story, yes. But more than this, as we look at Joseph's life together, more than learning from him as an example, and he is an exemplary character, we want to learn to trust the God who was with him. We want to learn to trust the God who is with him, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who chose Abraham and his family, the God who provided Isaac, a son, to Abraham and Sarah, the God who wrestled with Jacob. 
And what's remarkable about the story of Joseph is that while it turns out pretty spectacular in the end, it starts out bad. And it actually gets worse several times before it even starts to look like it might get better. And yet through all of it, God's provision, his his providential care, that idea of providence is his overseeing the world, his care is on display. And some of you this morning, you might not be that familiar with this story. If that's true, if you don't know the story of Joseph all that well, you're in for real uh, treat, I think, as we look at this, because it is one of the best places where we see that even when it seems like things in our life are spinning out of control and that God can't possibly have a plan or can't possibly be at work, that he is. For others of us, we may have grown up with this story. Oh, Joseph, I know, I know the story. Um, if that's you, I'd encourage you to, to try to look with fresh eyes. Because there's so much here, and even in the few weeks that I've been studying and reading through this, there are already things that I am seeing that I have missed in the past. So, wherever you're at with the story of Joseph this morning, let's dive in here in chapter 37 as it begins. Now, If you've been with us for any of the Genesis series so far, you know that the Bible already, just even in the book of Genesis, you know the Bible is not a book of heroes. It's not a book full of perfect people. In fact, far from it. Um, The Bible is uh, full of people who are just as human and messed up as any of us, and and in many cases much more so than, than most of us sitting here in this room. The Bible is full of very human characters. And Joseph's family is no exception, right? He is raised in a family of polygamy. His father, Jacob, has four wives, which just as a side note, while the Bible describes polygamy, uh, it never condones it. And in fact, many people have suggested that the book of Genesis is actually a subtle argument against polygamy because every family in Genesis that has polygamy as a part of it is a mess. It's a disaster. This is clearly not God's But this is the reality for Joseph's life, the culture in which he lives. He is born into a family of polygamy. His father has four wives. And Joseph's mom, Rachel, was by far Jacob's favorite of the four. After years of agonizing infertility, Rachel, the favored wife, finally gives birth to a child, to a son, to Joseph. Now, the other three wives in this family, they had already had sons and daughters, actually 10 sons specifically we have named at this point. So just imagine that scene for a moment. 10 sons, but in a minute, in Jacob's eyes, none of them will compare to Joseph. Again, just try for a minute to put yourself in the place of those 10 other brothers. Sure, there are 10 of you. It's a big family. But Jacob, your dad, he's loved you. He's cared for you. And he showed all of you pretty much the the same kind of affection and care and, and love together as this family of 10 brothers. But then Joseph is born. And in an instant, it becomes clear that you are always going to be less than in the eyes of your dad from that point on. 
Joseph is the favorite. And his relationship with his brothers is doomed because of it from the beginning, before Joseph can walk or talk or do anything. His relationship is, is doomed with his brothers because of how his father has singled him out. And favoritism is at the root of it. And his favoritism, this is a family problem for this family. It goes back a number of generations. This goes all the way back to Abraham, right? A generational pattern in this family of favoritism. And it has caused all kinds of pain in this family. All right, so, so Abraham, he prefers Isaac to Ishmael and Hagar, who he sends away into the desert eventually. And then Isaac repeats this pattern in his family, right? Isaac loves Esau. His wife Rachel loves Jacob. They have favorites. And now Jacob is playing out the same generational pattern of favoritism. He has a favorite wife, Rachel. And now a favorite son, Joseph. I just want to pause here for a moment. This isn't the main point of the sermon. It, it could be. This could be a whole message on the destruction of favoritism. But I just want to, just want to say, you, you may have experienced that dynamic, either being the favored one or on the outside of that in, the, in your family, in your workplace, on a team that you were a part of. And we just, we cannot repeat that pattern. It's devastating to the people involved to show this kind of favoritism so don't repeat that in your own life when you have positions of influence to treat people fairly well throughout the story joseph is presented as a person of excellent character actually he's one of the few people certainly in the book of, of genesis but really one of the few people in the whole of the bible who really were given a largely positive picture of someone that you would say yeah i would i should strive to really be like this person in every part of their life that i hope my my kids would grow up to be like this person there's not very many characters in this book that you can sort of comprehensively say yes but joseph is one of them for the most part and, and yet though at the beginning here in chapter 37 you kind of wonder if he didn't make his own situation a little bit worse uh just maybe through some immaturity. Look at verse uh, chapter 7, 37, verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with his sons, Bilhah, uh, with a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report about them to their father. And Joseph brings this, this bad report, and the author is already, just in verse 2, the author is telegraphing to us. He's setting up that his brothers are going to be kind of, they're going to be bad dudes. They're going to be bad characters, which we see very clearly as the story goes on. But he's sowing a seed here for us. And as you continue into verse 3, we understand again the devastation that favoritism has sowed in this family and the envy uh, that birthed it. So verse 3, now Israel, it's another name for Jacob, right? His name was changed. He's referred to as both Israel and Jacob now. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peaceably to him. Right? 
Jacob, he makes no attempt to hide that Joseph is his favorite. In fact, it's the equivalent of giving Joseph this shirt right here and, and making him wear it in, in public all the time. This is, this is what this coat does. Best son ever. I mean, that's in front of his other 10 sons, not to mention all of the daughters. And his situation, right, it only gets worse when Joseph starts to have dreams. And in these dreams, we heard them read. They, it's clear. It doesn't take a, a genius of a, of a dream interpreter to, to kind of figure this out. It's obvious that Joseph's having dreams in which his brothers and even eventually his mother and his father are, are bowing down to serve him. Now, Joseph may have lacked some tact in how, tact in how he shared these dreams, because even at one point his, his dad, who thinks he's the best son ever, kind of has this moment of like, like, really, Joseph, is that what's going to happen, do you think? But it's important to recognize also in this culture that dreams were really considered a way of divine revelation. And if you had a dream like this, you, you sort of had an obligation to share it. So it's not just that Joseph is sort of being uh, arrogant, but the, he's sharing these dreams. And again, the author so brilliantly tells the story is sowing in here right at the beginning that dreams are going to play a key part in this whole story of Joseph and his family. The special treatment that Joseph receives plus these dreams then equal his brothers who hate him. And this, again, this is a hatred that extends beyond just sort of sibling rivalry in this family. It goes much deeper than that. It quickly goes to a really dark place. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. Jacob sends Joseph out to check on the brothers. Again, there's this sense that these brothers, they're not fully trustworthy. They're not, they need someone to go check up on them. So Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. And it's an errand from which Joseph will never return home again. Jacob leaves that morning to go find his brothers, and he will never see his home again after that. Why? Because, verses 19 and 20, they see him coming from far off. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say, a fierce animal has devoured him. And then we will see what will become of his dreams. They are ready to murder their brother. Why? Why was there this hatred here? Why, where is this coming from? Yes, certainly from the favoritism that Jacob showed. That is there for sure. But even more from that, we learn back in verse 11 that it is rooted in this, and his brothers were jealous of him. The English Standard Version, that's the version we have uh, printed in the pews there, translate that word as, as jealousy. But the best Hebrew dictionaries would say you should really bring that word across in English as envy. Why? Because in, in English, the, the word jealousy almost isn't strong enough. In, in, in English, jealousy is almost just simply wishing that you had it better, that, that you had it better. But envy, on the other hand, is being bitter that someone else has it better. Jealousy just kind of wants, wants more or kind of wants to hang on to what it has. But envy, it adds this element of I actually hate you because 
you have something I want. It's not just that I want it, but I hate you for having it. Envy is basically hate sort of with jealousy glasses on. But ironically, envy never gets us what we want. In fact, it gets us less and less, and in time it makes us less and less. And envy, it's always rooted in comparison. And so for the question for us at this point in the story is who are you comparing yourself to? Who do you compare yourself to? And remember we said back at the beginning, envy is a sin of proximity. We, we don't typically compare ourselves to those who are way fantastically ahead of us in some kind of category. Again, we might admire them, we might fantasize about being them, but we don't typically compare ourselves to them. It's those who are just a little bit smarter, a little bit prettier, who have a little bit nicer house, a little bit nicer vacation, right? Those are the people that we tend to envy because those are the ones we compare ourselves to and we begin to become bitter that they have it better. Those are the moments when we are in danger of falling under the sway of envy. Rebecca DeYoung powerfully captures the essence of envy uh, in this fantastic book she wrote called The Glittering Vices. She says, it's not just that the other person is better. It is that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own inferiority more acutely. And she says wisely, if we reflect on whom we envy, we are likely to discover how we define our own identity and where we see that identity as most vulnerable. If, if you sort of follow the breadcrumbs of envy, you will find the thing that you have centered your life on. And inevitably, again, envy will never get you what you want. So where are you comparing yourself? Odds are that it is where there in that place of comparison that you will find the seeds of envy planted that left unchecked will so easily produce the rotten fruit of discontentment, of disillusion, of disdain, of despair. And in the story of Joseph and his brothers, envy doesn't just lead to, to discontentment or to disdain. It actually leads all the way to the point of death. They're willing to kill him. They're willing to kill for envy. But before they can actually lay their hands on Joseph to murder him, Joseph's oldest brother, the oldest of all the brothers, Reuben, he, he intervenes and he, and he puts a stop to the murderous impulse in that moment. And he convinces them, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into one of the pits, alive first. And the author kind of says, tells us that you know, Reuben's kind of hoping at some point, we don't know what happened, he goes, he leaves, maybe, but he wants to rescue Joseph from them. But they throw Joseph into an empty pit. I mean, imagine Joseph's fear in that moment. The hatred in their eyes. They want to cause him serious bodily injury. I don't know, they weren't gently lowering him down into this pit. I mean, they're throwing him in. He could easily break an arm, a leg, ribs. Maybe they think we'll just leave him there for days. Yeah, let's let him suffer. Let's let him die of dehydration down in this pit says there's no water in it. Either way, you see their callousness in what happens next. 
So they throw him into the pit. And the very next thing the author records is this. And then they sat down and ate. Like, who really worked up an appetite condemning our brother to a horrible death. Let's get something to eat, guys. You just get the sense they are so callous. They just go on with normal life. It's dinner time. Let's eat. Joseph languishing in the pit. This is where envy has gotten them. And often envy can feel justified to us, right? I mean, again, how many times had Jacob treated Joseph so much better than them? Envy, it feels justified. But envy, like every sin, say it again, but envy, like every sin, lies. It feels justified. It promises relief. It promises fairness. This will make things fair. But in reality, it only adds new burdens. It only makes things worse. And it's not just what it does to others. And in this story, you see already what it's done to Joseph. It's going to rip this family apart. It's not just what it does to others, but it's also what envy does to us, to our hearts, to the kind of people that we are becoming. And so while Joseph is languishing in the pit, they, they notice a caravan of traders coming and they think, well, Here's our opportunity. I mean, Joseph isn't worth anything to us dead, but maybe here's an idea. This is fortuitous. Yeah, here's some, some traders coming. We can sell them and at least make some money. We can still tell daddy's dead, but we can at least, well, at least we'll get some money out of this. And so they drag Joseph out of the pit, probably injured, terror in his eyes, and they sell him into slavery. This is, this is the story of Cain and Abel all over again. Right? Of disillusionment, of betrayal, of discontentment that leads to death. Because again, even though they don't actually kill Joseph physically in this moment, they, I mean, they are giving him up for death. They expect to never see him again, and they don't care whether he lives or dies. The only reason they're doing this is because they feel like we can make a little money on this. They're planning never to see him again. And they're going to tell Joseph's father that his son, his beloved son, is dead and he is never coming back, Dad. He's never coming back. And you know, that's actually what struck me afresh as I studied this story that just had never hit me at an emotional level reading this story before. I always thought about, yeah, Joseph's brothers are pretty awful to Joseph, which they are. But what stuck out me to fresh is the cruelty, not just to Joseph, but to their father. Right? They, they take this bloodied coat and they look their father in the eye. And they tell him, your son is dead. They lie to him. They lie to him and they watch him melt, absolutely fall apart in anguish and grief. And, and, and then they pretend to comfort him. Verse 33. And he identified it, the coat, and said, it, it is my son's robe. 
a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. All his sons, all ten, the very ones who had just sold him, they rise up and they comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, this idea of the place of death. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. I just, I tried for a minute just to put myself into the story and what, what must that felt like. And it's like, can I imagine, you know, years from now, my kids are grown up and they're adults. And two of them, the older two, sell their brother into human trafficking. And he's taken away to some other country, to some South American country, into forced labor. And they come and they say to me, Dad, Graham is dead. And he's never coming back again. And they pretend to comfort the hatred, the cruelty, not not just, I just, I couldn't, I didn't even like thinking about that in my own family context, but that's what happens in this family. The hatred, the envy bursts in their hearts, the cruelty. Left unchecked, this is what envy does. This is where it will take you over time. Not, not all at once, but slowly as it grows, it takes you to places to have thoughts and to do actions that you would have years ago thought unthinkable. So the question, second question for us this morning is this. How do we put envy into the pit? How do we avoid envy? How do we put it into the pit so that it does not grow and do this in our lives? Three things here this morning. First, if you're going to put envy in the pit, you have to show kindness. And it really begins with something that simple, to show kindness. And and what I mean by kindness is more than just being polite or sort of being nice. But kindness is this genuine desire in pursuit of the happiness of others. In the New Testament, you get this description of what's called the fruit of the Spirit. There's kindness and goodness. They go together. It's this desire for and action for the, the happiness, the blessing, the welfare of other people. And Envy has no room to grow when your thoughts and actions are consumed with being a blessing to other people. So instead of asking yourself, how can I get more than her? Ask, how can I be a blessing to her? Rather than asking, how can I be better than him? Ask, how can I encourage him? Just as a healthy lawn is not built simply by picking the weeds out of it by also planting more grass seed. The war on envy is waged through the intentional showing of kindness, especially toward those with whom we compare ourselves. So this week, just a practical exercise to think through. Notice, try to take note of when are you, when am I comparing myself to others? Because it just, we do it all the time. We don't even notice, but just try to pause and notice, when am I comparing myself? And then maybe think, how can I actually show kindness to that person? Maybe it's something as simple as, 
you just send them a quick text. I was thinking of you. You were. You were comparing yourself with them. I was thinking of you today. <laughs> and I just, I appreciate this about you. Or I'm so glad that you're in a part of my life. Or that you're a friend. Or that you, whoever it is, whatever is appropriate. So maybe if a bunch of you start getting texts from each other of, I was thinking about you this week. Uh, maybe you know those who are envying you in the congregation. Um, no, but just, it's something as simple as that. To take a concrete action. I was thinking of you, and I want to show you kindness. Second, if you're going to put envy in the pit, you have to practice gratitude and generosity. Those two things go hand in hand, gratitude and generosity. You see, envy and and gratitude, they cannot coexist. Envy and generosity, they cannot grow for long together. Envy, you see, obsesses over others and what they have. Whereas gratitude focuses on God and what he has provided. Do you see that? It shifts the focus. Envy is all about others and what they have. Gratitude is all about God and what he has provided. Envy is deceived by the lie of scarcity. There is not enough to go around for all of us. This is a zero-sum thing. I've got to get, get, get mine. Envy is deceived by the lie of scarcity generosity believes the truth of abundance that there's more than enough that god has given me enough and actually probably more than enough i can share in gratitude we say with our words that we have more than enough in generosity with our encouragement with our words with our time with our skills our money our hospitality in generosity we put our money where our gratitude is if you will and we show by our actions that we believe we have more than enough right in the practice of generosity we say with our actions i have enough more than enough and i am therefore able to give to others rather than wanting what they have so as we look for opportunity to show kindness, to express gratitude, to give out of the abundance that God has given to us, we begin to find that envy loses our, its grip in our lives. Rather than comparing ourselves with others, we start giving of ourselves to others. Rather than, than resenting others, we start receiving them. Rather than wanting what they have, we seek to share what we have been given. And you know, we could stop the sermon here they go do those things. You should go try harder this week to be kind. Try harder this week to be a person of gratitude and generosity. But there's one more thing here that if we don't wrestle with, if we don't tackle, it's going to actually make those first two impossible. We cannot do those first two until we have shed shame. Because until we get to the heart of why we compare ourselves, we will never have victory over envy in our lives. Because why do we compare ourselves? In a word, shame. Shame is that voice in our minds and our hearts that says, you are not enough. You are not enough. You don't have what it takes. You don't measure up. And so when we look at other people and we see that, we feel that inferiority that shame wants to point out. You are not enough. You don't have enough. You aren't good enough. You don't measure up. Again, Rebecca DeYoung gets to the heart of what's at 
the core of shame. She says the only escape from this vice is to find a completely different foundation for our self-worth. And in Christianity, what is that foundation? It's Jesus himself. It's the good news of the gospel. That we can be made right with God. That we can have a relationship with him. That we can be forgiven. That we can find our worth and our identity completely in him. And again, the gospel is not something that we just sort of accept once and then move on from. It's something we only go deeper into. And it begins to shape every part of our lives. And in the new life that we have in Jesus, our worth is no longer dependent on how we compare with others, how we measure up. It's not dependent on on me being better than someone else or feeling bad because I don't feel as good as someone else. No, our our worth is completely given to us by him. So do you look at others and compare yourself to their beauty? In Jesus, you have a Savior, the one who made you, who always sees you as beautiful, and who is making you glorious one day. Do you look at others and compare yourself to how much money they have? In Jesus, you have an inheritance of all of the heavens that can be given to you. You have an inheritance greater than any billionaire on the planet. Do you look at others and compare yourself with how smart they are? In Jesus, you've been given the mind of Christ. You have a relationship with the one who created the world, who is himself wisdom. Do you look at others and compare yourself to their successes? And you look at your own life and you feel regret and shame for the choices you've made. Jesus, you have someone who has completely forgiven you and who gives you a fresh start, who wipes the slate clean, who puts all those past mistakes and error and shame and sin and rebellion behind you for good. When we embrace the gospel, we become new creations. And when we have that relationship with Jesus, we are able to rest. And that rest transforms our life. And not only that, this doesn't just happen for us as individuals. In Jesus, in Christ, you're actually welcomed into a new family, into the local church, into this family, a place where you belong, where there is no favoritism, or at least there ought not to be where everyone is loved by their father equally well at the cost of the life of his son. We are all given a robe, not of many colors, but we're clothed with the righteousness, the very life of Christ. We're hidden in him. All of us have now the most glorious inheritance in him. And because of the acceptance we have in Jesus, in this new family, we have, as, and I love this is a line from Tom. He just says this over and over. It always is treasure me. We have nothing to fear, nothing to hide, and nothing to prove. That's what we're gifted in the gospel. We no longer have to compare ourselves, and therefore we are free to love God supremely and others sacrificially as we were created to by the power of the Holy Spirit who's actually living in us.
to do this. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, thank you that you have adopted us as your children and that in your family there are no favorites but you love us all supremely at the cost of Jesus who gave himself for us would you make me would you make us so secure in that love that the envy the comparison would just fall away from us and we would be a community of people who love and serve you and one another.